Welcome to the first episode of How I Made Them, a show about the people in and around the game industry and the things they make. My first guest is Matt Leone, features editor of the pop culture site Polygon. In January 2017, Matt published a story called Final Fantasy and Oral History, and it kind of felt like the game industry stood still, at least for a day, as everyone stopped to read this thing. Over the course of two years, Matt had interviewed 30 or more people with a hand in the making of this historic video game. The online version of the story featured multiple mini-documentaries, dozens, maybe hundreds, I didn't count, of original photographs, required a few different trips from San Francisco to Japan, and clocked in somewhere around 30,000 words. It's a massive, meticulous story about the creation, release, and aftermath of one of the most important and beloved video games of all time. And then the next year, he followed that up with the book version of the story, made in collaboration with Read Only Memory, which expands on the original story with new interviews, cutting room floor material, and new original illustrations. I wanted to talk to Matt about the creation of this piece and what it was like spending three years writing one story. We ended up talking about a lot more though, such as how, according to him, it didn't actually take three years to write, the ups and downs of oneup.com, and how he got to start writing about video games through birthday cards. We even talk a little bit about his next upcoming big project. In the interest of honesty, I think it's worth pointing out that Matt and I have worked together for more than five years, as I am a frequent freelance contributor to Polygon's feature section, and that I'd call him a friend after all this time. Anyways, without further ado, here's Matt's story. Matt, thank you for joining me. No problem. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's so good to talk right now on this call we just started two minutes ago, and everything seems like it's going on, going off without a hitch. Yeah, I feel like we have to acknowledge that we just failed and recorded almost an hour that fell apart on completely because of me. Um, but then let's move past it and not dwell on that too long, because I feel like that's amateur podcast stuff that we are clearly better than. Well, sure. I mean, <laughs> nothing but pro podcasts here on the first episode of yeah. How I Made That. <laughs> okay, so l- let me ask you, before we get into Final Fantasy and all that, mm. how did you get started in the game press? Like, I guess these days you're obviously most known for Polygon, but when did you actually like get into the whole thing? I'm not actually sure if that's true. I feel like I get more people talking to me about 1UP even nowadays. Um, I Let's see. Okay, so I, um, a- as a youngin, I-, I did a fanzine. When I was, uh, I think, in junior high or so, mm-hmm. it went by a few different names. So I, I, okay, so I'll tell you the story earlier, which was I, I remembered when I was first, the first thing I ever remember writing about games was uh, I had to write thank you notes when I was a kid. I, uh, I, I can't remember if it was like my birthday or Christmas or something like that, but basically um, I, I had to write notes, like I was required to by my parents. And yeah. so uh, the local Aladdin's Castle had gotten Mortal Kombat 2 in and so I basically just misspelled character names for about 300 words and then once I filled up enough of the card I would say thank you for the gift and that's kind of how I got started writing my games uh after that I did some fanzines then I did some fan websites then I did an internship at OXM then I did some time at 1UP and then I did some time at Polygon. What were some of those fancy names? Are you willing to put those? Out oh yeah, the world? well they're hard to find. They're, a few of them have, have surfaced every now and then. Like like Kohler had some that I think he gave to the Strong maybe because they were doing like yeah. a big fanzine thing. I think they might have a few, but uh, which is weird because they're, they're they're like horrendous. Like if you compare those to what people that age are doing now, it's it's like it's the most embarrassing thing you can imagine. But um. Yeah, they were. It's basically like Game Query, for just to put a frame of reference. Hold on, hold on, wait you. a second, back up. It's, you cannot come on my podcast and insult me about my podcast. No, I, I my love other Game podcast. Query. It's it's one of my favorites. I'm just saying it has that feel of <laughs> of youngins who haven't quite, uh, you know, decided to get boring and stable yet. Sure. Is that if that's a good way to say it? Um. Yeah, something like that. I don't know. No, it so was, very, it was, it was very a loose. lot of highbrow humor is what you're it, trying to it tell It wasn't me. even humor. It was just bad, which I don't mean for Game Core. Game Core has a different kind of, of, of amateur feel to it. Um, but no, yeah, it was it was a whole different thing. Um, yeah. So let's see. So it, at one point it was called Game Over because, of course. And then right. uh, I think it was called Gaming News and Game News, I think were two different ones. And if I remember correctly, Gaming News which was the title of the fanzine, I misspelled on the cover. So it was like gaming news or something like that. That's right. I misspelled the logo of the thing on the cover of the thing. Wow. Um, and then 
I think the last one might have been called Event Gaming, and then Event Gaming was the same name that I used for a, a fan site for a while, uh, and it was a, it, basically the idea was like, like we're talking about arcade games, so like treating them as like more of an event than you know playing a game at home. Because um, that, that it wasn't that the website wasn't just about arcade games, but after a while it kind of moved in that direction where it was like. Um, it, there weren't any good ones out there. So in some ways it was kind of like filling a gap of, of the kind of stuff that hadn't been uh, being written by the time. It's kind of like, like what Arcade Heroes is now, although not as, as in-depth or updated or whatever else. Um, so yeah, I did that a little bit and then I got an internship at OXM uh, and then I uh, got the job at 1UP and went from there. How, do you, how are you distributing zines back then? Like, were you mailing those things out? Yeah, yeah. So, so um, th- there was this little like community that had been built up because uh, EGM two and Tips and Tricks, they they started doing like fanzine reviews. So they had this little tiny column. I don't remember if it was every issue or every other issue or something like that. Um, yeah. Where they would just review like two or three issues of, of fanzines, and they would include like, you know, where you can get it and how much it costs and stuff like that. So, like, then I think that having that in there inspired a few of us, like, like me and, and Chris Kohler and uh, some other people to make their own little fanzines that we would then basically distribute to whoever would reach out to us through that, uh, those columns. Um, so it's kind of a, it, it, you know, it was, mine was probably one of the worst, um, but it was fun to kind of do and kind of play around with. And, of course, I... Mm-hmm. I, I would like print it on my grandparents printer and like we would waste like all their ink and paper because we didn't know how to print it and we're like oh this one doesn't look right let's make it lighter and then the yeah it was pretty bad but um it it was fun and yeah. it uh convinced me to keep doing it so i can't hate it too much but it yeah it's uh i wouldn't recommend reading it now <laughs> apart from just like the humor value of what it ends up looking like you said we. Who are you working on this thing with? Oh no, it was mostly me. Uh, my brother. Okay. My brother had a uh, a column. His nickname was Nougat, and he would do like Nougat's thoughts on things. And uh, and yeah, most of the rest of it was just me. I think my mom might have drawn the cover to it one time. That's that's the kind of level we're talking about here. Well, well to be to be fair, my mom is an artist, but okay. I'm, you know, not. Uh, maybe she didn't. I don't remember. But it. It wasn't what you would call professional. Then again, I was probably like 12 or something. I mean, what attracted you to writing about games? I guess maybe beyond the zines, like as you got older and started looking at like career paths. Yeah, I mean, I don't really know that I ever had like a like an answer to this is why I enjoy doing this so much as just Mm -hmm. I enjoyed doing this. I mean, I think the big thing is just like I grew up on game magazines, you know, like I, I was addicted to... Like I was thinking about this the other day. Like when I was young at my parents' house, I, I was—I I feel like a, a like a, a genuine like thing was in my brain. It was the the squeak of the mail truck coming down the street. So like every house it would stop at, I would hear like the brakes squeak. And when I heard that, I got excited. It was like this mm-hmm. this response. So then, because I knew that there was a decent chance that there would be a magazine or a catalog or something like that in the mail, and it wasn't. You know, it didn't come every time. But back then, you know, you get, you know, four or five things a month. There's a decent chance every day you might get something. So that was kind of like my biggest form of entertainment at the time was game magazine. I think a lot of people used to joke about it. I don't remember if that's quite as true these days. But a lot of people used to joke about, like, we enjoyed reading game magazines more than we liked playing games. And I think that, to a degree, yeah. was true. Um, not always. But but certainly, uh, I, I, I really, you know, had that kind of feeling going. So that was kind of... You know, I think the the simple way of saying it is just like I wanted to do that because I liked that. Um, and obviously, the industry has changed a lot, and what I've wanted to do has changed a lot over time. But that was kind of mm-hmm. like the uh, the original goal. Do you read the game query zine? I I read that one that you sent me. It's all right. <laughs> it's you know, there's yeah. At one up, you you <laughs> let's keep moving. At one up, you you held like a few different positions, like GameCube editor, all the way up to like managing editor. You bounced around. A little bit Depending there. on who you or what company you were at, managing editor or executive editor were like different ranks. So like at one up, managing editor was below executive editor, but at IGN it was the other way around. 
So oh, yeah, depending on where you were, it was different at different times, but whatever. I mean, it's all, it was basically just meant like help organize things for the site. Well, at what point in that, you know, at what point at one up did you kind of land on like long form stuff and the stuff you do now? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. It's, um. So like I had done previews for a while. That was, and you know, that, so like, if you think about it um, in that era, uh, doing previews was kind of the best path to being in charge. So like if you look at um, like what magazines were, the the cover of magazines was typically a big preview. Like it was a cover story, which was like a exclusive preview of the game most of the time. Um, and so typically people who had previews jobs would kind of end up kind of moving into the, the more organizational like overseeing roles. Um, so partially because of that and partially just because I liked seeing what was coming out soon, um, I was doing a lot of preview stuff. Um, and then that kind of more kind of naturally moved into, uh, doing more kind of like organizational stuff for this as a whole. And then once I got kind of more, um, flexibility and I, I didn't really have to like, like people weren't like telling me what to do as much as I just got to like decide. Then I started mm -hmm. doing more previews that were more like people focused, like that were kind of half and half. And then at a certain point, I just kind of left the left the games that, not behind, but I certainly kind of decided that like you know stories about people were just kind of more interesting than stories about games. So I, I you know everything I do probably has a little of both in there, but it's definitely more about kind of uh, the people these days. What was what was that first person focused one? Yeah, so I mean, I I don't remember exactly, but the one that sticks out to me was I did this like Tim Schafer profile. Um, which was kind of fun because we got to, uh, this was on the uh, Brutal Legend and uh, we kind of, it's kind of like taking inspiration from Rolling Stone, which, you know, because of the game um, and uh, doing more of like a, a deep dive into like him and like what he's up to and where he's going and what his, his personal past was. And we, we had done these like these cover stories at the time where we did like multiple stories throughout the week. So each story didn't have to be like all encompassing. So we could just like kind of dedicate this one to like his history instead of the game so much. Um, mm. And yeah, I, th I mean, I'm sure it's terrible now, but at the time it was pretty, it's not, it, feel, it felt good, I should say. Is it interesting that to you that at least like in our sphere, one up seems to have like still have this like big cultural cachet, just even though it's kind of been, a, it's been gone for a while. Like I remember the other day when um, Area Five started streaming the One Up show, it was all like my little Twitter feed could talk about. Like, is it weird that to you that people hang on to that website so much? I don't think it's weird. I mean, I I, I think the the answer of why is fairly clear to me, which is sure. not not the stuff I did for the most part. Um, it's because it made such. It was like you know, it was you could say ahead of its time, but it was it was very much the the website that. Um, that pushed hardest into audio and video. So mm -hmm. like, and, and personality focuses audio and video too. Um, so that, you know, I think is everywhere now, whether you're talking about like game sites or, or individuals or whatever else. But um, so it's a combination of pushing in that direction and having some kind of like established credibility from like EGM and, and CGW and things like that. So like you had people who, you kind of already knew their names or had kind of heard of, and then you got to see the added stuff. Like it was like marketing is the wrong word, but it's kind of like you had this like built-in audience ready for that kind of stuff because of all the magazines and, and the websites. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, so when I talk about one up, I'm really talking about like all of the the Ziff stuff because it was all kind of intertwined, especially towards the end. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it, it it's 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 legacy is probably pretty well remembered and and probably better remembered than seen like if you go back and look at all the articles and look at all the videos i'm sure there's lots of terrible ones mixed in there too um but mm. people remember the good moments over time so i think that's great it's weird like it, it depends what time frame you're talking about too because like one up at the beginning was very different than one up at the end and it uh it kind of bounced around a lot. i felt like three or four different companies over the course of the time i was there so how'd you get from one up to polygon I got laid off. Um, oh, word. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, so one up towards the end, like the last, I don't know, two or three years, got bought by by Hearst, and then, which was, which owned UGO. So UGO kind of oversaw one up, which was great. Um, UGO is a fantastic website. I don't know if you've ever visited it, but uh, I highly recommend it. Um, but, uh, but no, I mean, for the most part, they let us 
go and they didn't interfere too much. So that was fine. Um, But they did lay off a whole bunch of people, which was not so fine. I mean, so the story of one up as, as someone who worked there is less about its legacy and more about like the, the weird up and down of staffing. Cause like, it was it was so much this roller coaster of like okay we're gonna hire people we're gonna lay people off we're gonna lay people off we're gonna hire people we're gonna lay people off um, and like I got so numb to it towards the end that like now when I'm at like other companies and like you know there, there's unfortunate things happen it's like I, I feel like it's just this whole different thing like there there could be a situation where you're at a company and, and someone gets laid off and and everyone around you is like oh man the, the world is coming to an end and I feel like yeah, it, I mean, this is really bad, but I kind of feel like it's just kind of expected. It's just kind of the way the industry yeah. works, and it's it sucks, but um, it's it doesn't really surprise me anymore. Um, and so anyway, uh, but yeah, so like I went up, like the there were lots of of small layoffs over time, uh, like lots, and and so then the big one came when when Hearst came in and and bought it, and then they they lay off like I think it was like half the company or maybe more. I don't know exactly. Mm-hmm. So that was that was obviously like the big turning point although there were lots of small turning points i would say before and after that um so i was not laid off then i was i was it was weird um but i was the person who had to kind of like run around when that was happening telling so like there was this weird situation where we had some contractors who weren't full-time employees but worked in the office Mm. and were basically like full-time employees they just didn't i believe they just didn't get health insurance if i'm not mistaken and so i had to run around that day and go to all of them because they hadn't been factored in to all the company's plans the company had not like put together a plan to tell them they have a job or they don't and so a lot Mm. of them just assumed they didn't um so i was kind of tracking them all down to like say hey if you still want to do this you can so we uh yeah so we kept that going with Hearst and it was, it was, you know, it was a very different thing, but personally I feel like I got to do some of the stuff I enjoyed most then because there weren't any expectations or pressure, but it just had a very different feel and uh, a lot of people we liked were gone. Um, and then IGN bought it after another year or two and I worked there in the IGN office, but four one up for, I don't remember, maybe a year or so. And then mm-hmm. eventually I got laid off, which, you know, is was probably for the best because I had, you know, I had gotten a little comfortable and uh, maybe that's the wrong word, but certainly it was, it was not as uh, like, I, I personally was doing stuff that I liked, but I didn't feel like I was really helping the site as much. I was just kind of like maybe being a little selfish and just kind of uh, not really uh, as engaged in it as it could be. And part of that was, that was just because like, I think we all knew it was going to come to an end eventually. Um, yeah. But yeah. So then, uh, yeah, I got, I got to go, uh, and uh, Polygon happened really fast. I, I got that. Like, they had they had started up or announced they were going to start up a little bit before then, and then I joined in, basically. They had hired, like, a, I think around eight people originally, and I was kind of, like, part of the second wave, I think, or maybe mm. third, somewhere in there. Were you hired as features editor at that time? No. I was uh, I was on the features team. I can't remember if it was assistant or associate or... Deputy, I think it was deputy features editor. They have like weird titles here sometimes, but um, sure. they, yeah. Uh, so we had a three-person features. Team. When I was hired, there were two, and then we hired Charlie. So we had three people working on features um, for that first year or two. I think about two years. We had a big budget at that time. It was, it was <laughs> sure. throw around lots I of mean, things. Well, let me ask you about that then. Like joining this team and you know them having this real strong focus on more personal stories which is something you had like leaned into at one up like what was what were some of your original thoughts with where you wanted to take your stories or just the site's like overall feature direction yeah i mean i think it was it was similar in a lot of ways i think that the stuff that i had kind of naturally started doing the last few years at one up was very similar to what Polygon wanted to do with its features, which I, you know, I think is why they, they hired me. Um, yeah. I, you know, it was it was very much just on a on a simple level. It was just kind of stories about people who either made games or were connected to the industry in some way. And so, yeah, I mean, that was a pretty natural fit. Like I, you know, they had kind of figured out their direction on their own, and then I, I think I slotted into that decently, um, and then. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it wasn't really a lot to figure out there. What was the first story you started looking into for Polygon? I'm actually surprised I remember this because I'm usually not that good with these things, but I remember it because it started as a one-up story. I was um, I was writing it for one-up, and then as I got let go, I was like, hey, can I take this with me? And they're like, yeah, sure, whatever. Um, 
So I, it was a story on Papo and Yo. Um, remember that game? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, about the alcoholic father, right? Yes. So the weirdest part about that story and was that we were at this press event for the game. And, um, you know, a lot of press events at the time would have like, you know, they would take place in bars and they would have like themed drinks. So it'd be like, oh, here's the new Call of Duty game. And by the way, you get this drink that's named after Call of Duty because that's, you know, what party planners do. Yeah, you can drink from the gulag. Yeah, and so there was this event that Sony had done that had Papuño and I think a couple other games too. It wasn't just that one. But they had a themed drink named after that game, which is just the weirdest thing because it's this game about this alcoholic father who like abuses his kid and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, it... And it was it was a game based on like a real life scenario, you know, like it wasn't like yeah. literally one to one, but it was it was based on the guy who who kind of was like the creative director of the game, who had like these these kind of childhood issues that he wanted to, to talk about, and yeah, it just felt like this huge disconnect, and and I was amazed that I was the only one that I noticed who actually like reported on this, um, and it, it just felt very strange, but um, it was a good game. I like that a lot, but it. Uh, it was kind of weird. So basically, yeah, I, I remember taking that story with me. Beyond that, I would probably forget most of the early stories. I know I did one with like Halo, um, like focus testing for the launch because I remember we ran that right when Polygon launched. But mm-hmm. I saw you write somewhere you've only written like seven good stories for Polygon. What are the seven? Yeah, <laughs> I remember writing that. I didn't really have an exact list in mind when I wrote it. Um, <laughs> I guess um, the Final Fantasy one would probably be on there. I feel more comfortable saying that because there's a lot less writing and a lot more just like other people talking. So like, yes, I sure. did I did the work to put it all together, but it's mostly quotes. So I don't feel as guilty taking, uh, like saying it's good, I guess. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I know I like the Kudaragi one, which again, mostly quotes. I like the yeah. White Label story, which I did write. Um, uh, yeah, let's say the Halo one. That was fun. I remember making okay. a, uh, I remember fact checking the dollar amount that they had spent on pizza for that, which amused the PR guy to no end. Oh, the Milo story. That was good. The Milo and Kate one. I don't know if that's seven, but something like that. Okay, so tell me about one of those stories then. What was the genesis of this whole Final Fantasy thing? Like, how did you decide to start investigating it? Hmm. Um, I had, I was on a trip to Japan, so I, like, I, I have done trips to Japan fairly regularly, whether it, like, for TGS or whatever, and when I'd go, I, I'd, I'd make, like, a list of, like, okay, I'm gonna be in town, who else do I wanna try to talk to while I'm here, besides, you know, the main reason for going, um, and so for this trip, I, I I was like, okay, well, let's, let's look into, like, some kind of Final Fantasy VII retrospective thing, and, I didn't really have a great big plan for it at the time. I was just kind of like, well, let's see what we can get. So I started like with some of the main people. Like I, I remember I got Sakaguchi on that trip and I talked to Amano. I think I tried to talk to Uematsu, but that came through a little bit later. Um, so basically it was it just like, it, it worked out pretty well. It was like a good start. So then I, I started thinking like as time went on, like, oh, okay, maybe I should turn this into something bigger. Cause like, that's kind of mm. how my brain works. It's like, I don't, like when i see that there's something good i like to make it as like perfect as possible i guess so like if i see that there's potential for something to be good i'm gonna like run after it and spend a long time on it and try to like fill in every gap and and you know cross every t and all that um so i i kind of sensed that things were going well and i when i came home from that trip I, i i reached out to some other people kind of we're on the U.S. side, and I started talking to them, and I started like filling this thing out. And I was like, oh, "Okay, I think I have something here." So then I just started saying, "Like, okay, well, let's let's just keep going with this and see how far we can take it." And just like little by little, it just kind of started adding up. Like it it started pretty small, but it ended uh, just because I didn't I didn't really know where to stop. I was like, "Let's just take this as far as I can take it," and I didn't really yeah. have anybody stopping me. So I was like, "Okay, why not?" Do you remember what year that trip was? That first one you took? Uh, I don't. Um. When did the story post? 2017, I think. 2018. Uh, so I don't know, probably 2015 or 2016, somewhere in there. I feel like deciding to take on a story as an oral history is a lot different than just doing a normal story in that, for one, it just requires like 
a ton more work than some stories. Like, when did you decide that was the format and structure you wanted to use for this thing? Yeah, it's weird. It's kind of weird. Like, it's a uh, when talking about taking more work because so for me, it's like there are parts of it that are very deceptive. Like, if you look at it as a reader, uh, yeah. it, it it seems very simple. It seems very much like you're just kind of running a transcript of an interview, um, mm. and you can do it that way. And I think that's probably the difference between like the, the, I don't want to say the bad ones, but that's kind of what I was saying. Like, but like the lazier ones that are mostly just like, here's a bunch of stuff that we kind of threw together from what we've, we've heard in interviews. Um, there are a lot of people who, who do oral histories like that. And I don't necessarily think they're bad. There are a lot of good ones that come out of that. Um, but the ones that I like more that I appreciate more are when like, people get really detailed with like the structure and they'd be like, okay, I'm only going to use this one paragraph here because then I'm going to pay it off down here and I'm going to like set up all these other things and like basically treating it like you're, you're writing a story through the editing um, yeah. instead of just kind of like posting what you've got. Um, and that kind of thing takes a, a ton more work than people probably realize just because it's a lot of organizational stuff. Like you have to make sure to ask the right questions and you have to like, you know, maybe you won't get two opportunities to talk to the same person. So you have to like predict what somebody else is going to say so that you can get this person to respond to it. And yet it's it like, it takes a lot of organization on that level. I, I don't necessarily think it's always more work once you get into like having it all on the page. Like if you've organized it well ahead of time, then when you get to the point where you're like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to write this up. I'm going to put this all together. Sometimes it is a little bit easier then. Uh, I'm actually doing that right now for this other story I'm working on. I have like all this stuff that I've got together that I'm now starting to put together into like oral history stories. Um, mm. And it it's a mix. A part of it is easier just because you have a lot of it already and you know, like like the structure kind of like, it tells you what to do instead of you having to like tell it what to do. Um, but then also like there's this whole kind of, if you're missing one quote to like bridge a gap between two other quotes, sometimes you may have to try like tracking down like three other people just to get that one quote. So mm -hmm. it, it's, it's a mix. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know for final fantasy that I was going to do that ahead of time. I kind of just uh, started looking into like what would retrospective be. And then maybe six months or so into it after like seeing that it was picking up some traction, I was like, okay, well this might be a good format for it. I feel like like these past few years oral histories have become really in vogue and they almost like carry this prestigiousness to them more so than if you just see a headline like the making of X thing. What do you think it is about that that like makes these stories stand out so much or even like makes them so popular for writers right now? I don't Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I personally feel like they're almost a little more <laughs> kind of played out at this point. I, I, mean, I mean that mostly just because there's so many of them and I feel like that term it has has some baggage with it now and people see it and they're like oh okay it's I, I don't know exactly how to describe it but it's definitely kind of it's got a different feel than some other things and sometimes maybe that's a prestigious feel and sometimes i mean just because of like the amount of work it takes to track down you know more than one person um but i think sometimes it's more like a like an eye roll thing like oh okay you're doing this again or you know you didn't have a better idea for an angle so you're just kind of doing this to to kind of take it in a different direction. I, I personally like it just because um, I feel like it just, it puts a different spin on uh, the types of things people normally read. I think like, so for example, for Final Fantasy, like that's a story that has been fairly well told over the years. Like if you talk to, uh, not talk to, but if, if you're someone who's like paid attention to like game history, you're going to know like the main beats of that story of like where it came from and the, the games before it and like the tech demo and the like Nintendo Sony stuff and kind of where it ended up. Um, so like I didn't really have any interest in just kind of telling that story again, but by doing it in this structure, I thought you could get different anecdotes and different kind of like uh, a different feel to it and kind of hearing it from their voices, I thought would be very interesting instead of just kind of like telling the facts of what happened again how many people did you end up interviewing for this thing like total i don't remember but i think it was around 30 maybe more i think it's maybe a few more than that when the book came around because i added a few things then 
Um, which, to put that in perspective, is about half the size of the thing I'm currently working on. So <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I, it's never enough, basically. Were you were you banking, like, trying to get quotes from interviews for other stories in this thing? Like, I noticed Shuhei Yoshida pops up, like, twice in this thing. But he doesn't, he doesn't have much of a presence. So was that like an interview for something else? So one of my favorite things to do with an oral history, which is not at all smart from a time perspective, is to just have one person in, drop in with like one quote who's, who's, yeah. who just like basically happened to be one of the people who was in the room at the time or has like an interesting perspective. And so like you have this whole story going on with like all these other people talking and kind of like, telling what they and then you and then they they mention like somebody's name and then all of a sudden the next thing is that person just like jumping in i don't know something about that feels very fun to me as a reader just to kind of like wow i never expected that you would you know go to the length that you did just to kind of get that one extra person in there now i don't think that's necessarily the case with 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 shuhei i think that was I believe I did that. I was uh, doing a PlayStation VR kind of making of story uh, with Sony, and I'm pretty sure I just kind of got those during that interview. But I wasn't like deceptive about it. Like I like I told them yeah. I was going to do it ahead of time, and it's always a weird thing where you have to kind of decide whether you want to kind of let people know what you're intending to do, or whether you need to like surprise them with something. And I, I try not to surprise them too often unless it's like really necessary for something. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a balance. I think generally I like just getting things wherever you can, but you want to be upfront with people too. Were there any interviews you did that didn't make it in the piece? Oh, um, probably. There's, I, I don't remember offhand, yeah. but there, my chances are there were some people. There, usually when I do a story that's like a bigger thing and I interview a lot of people, usually there's one or two that, you know, either repeat things you've gotten elsewhere or just like people who aren't, especially for something like this, people who aren't very quotable. Like some people mm. speak in much more like engaging quotes. And you have to be careful with that too, because like you don't want to just give someone like a whole bunch of column inches because they have better quotes, even if they weren't like that significant to the story or whatever else. But so it's, it's a little balance that you have to do there. But uh, I don't remember specifically. There, usually there are like one or two people though that you talk to and they like they either don't remember things very clearly or they just don't really advance the story that much and that kind of thing. And you feel bad because it, it, it kind of like you wasted their time, but it, sure. it, it does help even if they don't end up. Like there, there are ways that it usually helps even if it's just like background information for a caption or something like that. Final Fantasy VII like obviously carries a lot of weight for a lot of people. Players, I mean, like... Yeah. Did that? Did it feel weird doing a story like that? Like, did you get nervous about taking on that as a topic? Not really. Um, I, I didn't get nervous about it, and and I should clarify. Like, I'm not like an, a Final Fantasy uh, plot expert. Like, I, I I don't know all the details of like you know if this person said this quote, what that means in relation to like games from like four years earlier and that kind of stuff. Like, a lot of that goes over my head. Um, cause I, I, I just generally don't get into that level of detail on, on game stories. So like my interest in it was much more, you know, the people who made it and kind of the circumstances that led to it and that kind of stuff rather than the kind of minutia that I think a lot of fans would get hung up on. And so because of that, we kind of just, or I, I kind of just uh, like skipped over that. Like I wasn't mm-hmm. planning on really diving into like the backstory of each character. So it was easier doing that without having to like risk you know pissing people off or or doing things that they wouldn't um approve of because i didn't really like focus on that too much i feel like the the fan kind of backlash would be stronger if you were if you were you know wrong about something it's much easier not to be wrong about something if you don't really like try so i (laughs) I didn't really focus on that stuff too much how helpful was square with this thing when you reached out to them and was like, Hey, here's what we want to do. Can we talk to this person or this or that person? Yeah. I mean, it, it worked pretty, pretty good actually. It, I mean, it, it really just, you get depending on what company and at what time and who the PR person is, who's heading it up and who the developer is, who's involved in it. Like it, it's, it's really kind of luck of the draw as far as like how much participation you'll get from, you know, the official way in this case, they they really um, I worked out well because uh, mm-hmm. I, I had told them I was doing it after I had gotten a 
decent way the way through. I wasn't like I didn't start like by going to Square and saying like, "Hey, can you help me do this?" Um, a lot of times people will do that, and that's like a more like official version of the story. This was very much like I got a long way of the way through it. I don't remember how far anyway, but at least half of the way um, before I reached out to them. And then when I got that far, I was like, okay, well, I want to, I want to see what I can get from them. So I, I, I messaged them or I forget exactly. Maybe I called them and I was like, Hey, we're doing this thing and we'd love for you guys to participate and uh, let's see what happens. And I didn't really know what to expect. Um, so then it turned out we got pretty lucky because they were in town for uh, PSX one year or maybe they, I don't remember if they're in town for that or they just happened to be in the U.S. because of that, something like that. Anyway, they were in San Francisco uh, with like Katase and Nomura and they were like, yeah, let's, let's you know, um, we, can, we can stop by your office for a few hours. And uh, so it was great. I, I think it was like on a weekend or something. Like, the whole office was closed. You had to like go like let them in in the rain or something like that. And uh, it, was, it was very, like it was just great. I think we got lucky on the timing of it because if – if it had happened um, through email or something like that, it really wouldn't have gotten. Like, I think for oral histories in particular, because you're looking for quotes, uh, mm-hmm. email interviews just like they kill it if you don't. Um, it, you know, if, if that's like, I, like I have a general rule, like I won't do a story based entirely on an email interview. Um, it has to be like a small piece of it, and I think for oral history, that's even more true. Like, you need to kind of have people speaking casually, and so. I probably would have done it if they forced me to because they had some, you know, fairly uh, important people to the story that still worked at Square. I probably would have like seen what I could get, but uh, certainly having them do the in-person stuff for for you know a long period of time was was super helpful. When you were reaching out to people for this project, like, what was the general reception? Like, were people excited to talk to you, or was it hard to get a bunch of people on board? Yeah, no, I mean, I think I think because the game was a like. A success not just like a little bit but like it was a huge success i think i don't think people, yeah. were, people were really surprised by it i think sometimes if you're asking about something that's more obscure or something like that people would be like hey this is weird but okay if you want to um mm. but it, but it, with something like this it was just like you know we were we were reaching to lots of different people so it wasn't really just like you know the three or four people that everyone's heard of um so sometimes people were maybe not as used to doing interviews but it wasn't really like they were shocked that we wanted to do it i think it's it's the kind of game that was a big enough deal that they kind of understand without us having to sell that too much i when i reached out to you and i asked you if you want to do this do this interview on how you spent three years writing a story on final fantasy 7 the first thing you said was i didn't what's that mean because that was in well, a bunch of the like promotional material for this thing. Yeah, I mean, I basically just meant that I, uh, it, you know, it's it's it wasn't three years of writing. Like I had a full time yeah. job that I was doing for most of that time. So like, yes, this this would eat into some days here and there. But it was, I think, it's the kind of story that's good to have just kind of like hanging around because you don't really have to. Uh, a, you don't have to stress over it moment to moment, but also like you, you can just kind of like fit it in as it makes sense. Like, okay, if it's going to take a while to track down some of these people, give them time and like let it let it just play out as it plays out because it's a retrospective, so you don't have to be super concerned about like getting it done right away. Um, so I think it, it's the kind of story that benefits from just kind of having that time, whereas like I'll go do something else for a month and then just forget about it and come back to it. Um, mm. So yeah, I mean, it, it sounds good, I guess, to present it as like a story that took a long time, or it sounds bad depending on how you look at it. But um, it uh, it's more just like I don't know. It's it, it's a story that took a while, but not it, it would have gone much faster if I had you know done it entirely as like my own my full time job or something. What do you what do you think was the most challenging aspect of doing this piece specifically? Mm, I don't know. I mean, really. It didn't like it feels overwhelming kind of looking back at it because it was a fairly large project, but like it didn't feel that challenging in the moment. It's more just like yeah. I think the most challenging part is just kind of like keeping focused on it and staying motivated, maybe because like when you're working on something for a long period of time and like you have to, oh, okay, I have to transcribe all this before I can really get to this, which before I can get to that. So like there's all these like different steps you have to get through to order to like make it work. Um, so sometimes that can be kind of intimidating or just like hard to kind of get excited about, um, as you're going through, but it wasn't really like one moment where it was like all falling apart or like 
you know, super tense or anything like that. It was more just kind of mm. like, you got to take a long time to finish it. Do you hand transcribe everything yourself? I used to. Um, I did most of the stuff on Final Fantasy, I think. But yeah, because I just didn't trust people <laughs> to transcribe <Yeah. laughs> it for me. I, I am better with that now. And, and I, I do have uh, people who help a lot. Although often I'll go back and check it. The thing that I've done more recently, and some of this on Final Fantasy, but is is when you're doing like interviews with with people who speak other languages, it is it, just like having people uh, retranslate those after the fact, which is extremely time consuming and and costly. But uh, I think is is something that I it's hard for me not to do these days, just because it's 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 so clear when when once you've done that a few times, just like how many little errors get through when you're just doing like a live translated interview um, mm. that it it's hard for me to go back now that I've been able to do that on stuff. Um, so like, yeah, like just like the li- littlest things, like whether they, you know, whether they say I or we, which sometimes they don't even clarify in the way they say it, but like, um, or whether they're, you know, you know, they'll, they'll make a list and they'll list like four things, but the interpreter will only catch like three of those or something like that. Like all those little things, like to someone like me who like cares a lot about these, these stories and these details, like it's, it's hard knowing that uh, a lot of that stuff gets missed some of the times. Did you do that for like all 30 plus interviews, have them retranslated? Well, I guess there weren't all, they weren't all, all Japanese, them were Japanese yeah. speakers. Yeah. Um, I, I don't remember if it was every single one, but certainly we did a yeah. lot on Final Fantasy the current thing I'm doing, which is like this, this Street Fighter thing, which is very similar in some ways, uh, we're, we're we're doing that with everything to like extreme degrees, and it's <laughs> it's probably driving people a little crazy. But it's uh, it's yeah. I mean, I, I feel like especially for something like this, it's it's something that you just kind of like. I don't know. Now that I've seen how good it can be in the last you know five years or so, uh, it's hard for me to go back. Maybe maybe we can talk about it your current project a little further down. But what is it about Street Fighter that attracts you that you're now taking on another big project about it? Because you already had the Street Fighter Two oral history, right? Street Fighter is the, well, Street Fighter Two is the best game of all time. It's Tony Hawk's Underground, but yeah. Go ahead. Mm, I mean, <laughs> you grew up in a different era. If you know, I saw this thing the other day that was like uh, everyone's um, most meaningful bit of pop culture happened when they were 11 years old. Mm. And for me, Street Fighter hit. I think I was technically ten, but it was like right on the cusp. Um, yeah. So that that fit pretty well. But um, no, I mean, I, I I think part of it's that, and it's just like a very meaningful series to me. Um, mm. But I think it's also a pretty interesting story. They're like Capcom had a lot of uh, weird stuff going on, and, and and I think also it was a story that until maybe more recently. Um, people didn't really know, especially in the U S they didn't really know very much about it. It was like, if you looked around at like the most popular games of all time, um, there were lots of like making of stories for all of them. But then when you looked at like the ones for street fighter, like they were bad, like they were missing a lot of details. They got a lot of stuff wrong and they just didn't have much information in there. And that's not nearly as true these days. Like there's a lot more stuff that's come out in the last, yeah. uh, you know, 10 years or so. But, um, but at the time that was part of the motivation was just like, you know, a lot of this stuff is either missing or wrong, so let's do what we can. Now I've kind of like taken that and be like, okay, now I'm just kind of like selfish. I wanna, I wanna find out everything, so I'm kind of doubling down on all that and just kind of digging into every nook and cranny. But um, yeah, I mean, I think the main motivation is just I like the games, but also I think there is an interesting story there. So fi- the Final Fantasy VII story became something of like a production within like obviously Polygon, but also Vox and the storytelling team over there. Can you tell me how the thing like got traction within the wider company? I don't think it was one like moment when it was just like, okay, we need to do a thing. Like it was so many little things along the way that kind of made it a bigger project. Like for instance, uh, the first thing we probably decided apart from just the article itself was like, okay, let's do photography. So like a lot of times yeah. when we would do the interviews, it'd be like, okay, now we're going to send a photographer to either tag along or to go the day, you know, the day after or something like that. Um, so that was very much kind of a, a long-term, like do it as you go kind of thing, because sometimes you'd miss the opportunities if you didn't. Um, and so we basically we had like a photographer in, or who was near Tokyo and a photographer who was in LA at the time. 
and they just kind of like the guy in LA matched the guy from Tokyo's uh, style. And so we can kind of like get them all together. That was a fun kind mm. of, that was, I mean, honestly, as someone who has, has done a number of different stories along these lines, I think that was one of the most fun things for me was just kind of like, see if I can track down nice photos of all these people, especially because some of them, like people didn't really know what they look like. Um, and then, yeah, so it kind of like rolled from one thing to another. So it started with photos and then, uh, at some point, we decided to do um, like a, a fancier layout with, like you mentioned, like a storytelling studio, which was kind of uh, kind of like an experiment to just like see what we could do um, more interesting with a layout or, or some kind of visual aspect. Um, mm. And the storytelling team introduced us to uh, this school called American University, which made this like mini game that we worked with them on. Um, and then towards the end, we decided to do like some, some short videos. And then, uh, after it published, we then decided to do the book. So it just kind of like one thing after another, after another, it just kind of like rolled into all these different, um, formats or, or like side projects kind of that ended up making it take a, a while, but also kind of having sure. a different, different feel to it. What does the storytelling do? I guess I was just under the impression they come up with like, a unique layout for a story, but is there other stuff there? So the storytelling studio, um, which doesn't really exist anymore, it's kind of morphed into some other stuff. Um, it was it was kind of this this team at Vox um, of designers mostly who would kind of um, maybe not mostly, but definitely designers and like people who would like test stories and experiment with things like different. You know, there's there's very much a trend with um, media companies. Uh, in that time frame and, and that like kind of see what you can do with more like elaborate layouts. So maybe that's something interactive that like you click on and it explodes or moves around or something like that. Or maybe it's something, you know, just more visual or maybe something that as you scroll, you get like images that kind of like pop into the middle or text changes color or stuff like that. So it's also like coming up with those kinds of like visual ideas and, kind of uh seeing how those fit the story like one of the ideas for the final fantasy thing was we could have like a select your character thing where maybe you like clicked on a character and then that would like draw a line from that picture to the their quotes and if you just want to read their quotes or something like that we didn't end up doing that um but so it was kind of playing around with stuff like that and then they would have like user testing where they would like bring people in to like test out the layout and see if it worked like there was a thing in there where we did where it was like save your place so like you get to it because it was a really long story and it was all one page so if you get to a certain point in the story and then you left and like closed the browser and came back it would take you back to that same place in the story which was kind of neat um so lots of playing with little dif different things like that and like seeing how they would work I think a lot of that is not necessarily the most um, financially practical to do on like a day-to-day -day basis. So it's more like they would just pick out a few things here and there to kind of do uh, in, a, in a very kind of impressive way. Um, and we just, we happen to be, you know, kind of have a, a, a story that was pretty significant, right, ready at the right time that they were looking for stuff. So it just kind of fit into what they were doing. And yeah, I mean, the biggest thing they probably... Did apart from just like what it looked like in the layout was probably the uh, the mini game they, they kind of set that whole thing up. Are there other stories you all worked on with the storytelling team back then? I guess I don't know. Um, not to this degree that were things I did. There may have been yeah. some other smaller things. I don't remember exactly. Um, they did a lot of stuff with other Vox sites at the time too. I I feel like earlier in polygons history you saw a lot more unique layouts but you all have shifted away from that in recent years oh yeah yeah no that I mean that was a yeah. whole that was the whole um that's not just polygon that's all of vox so like okay the early days of um vox they had like a, a very different kind of uh, cms that you would use that had mm. you know certain chunks like it was designed to kind of make it look more custom even though you could do it as editorial and like we had a designer working on a lot of that stuff um, and then, yeah, I mean, as time went on that, I think both that trend kind of, of, uh, you know, there, there was always, it always felt to me kind of like people were lying to themselves as far as like, this is the future of the internet because sure. each one was so like it was really interesting and, and fun to work on, but like, so like time consuming and, and custom that you didn't really, um, ever see how that would be like 
to use the, the tech word, like scalable. You know, it wouldn't ever like apply to all these different stories. So part of the idea with early Vox stuff was like, how can we do some of these cool, um, more interesting little, uh, you know, uh, pieces of stories or, or visual elements that we could then um, just kind of swap in as, as easily as you want. So you, you, we would have these little like uh, widgets that you could kind of like drop into stories and be like, okay, here's an interesting visual presentation or here's a, a slider or here's whatever else. Um, and so we, we did a little bit of that. And then we, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, as time has gone on, we've moved a little bit away from that because I think partly it's just a little bit more gimmicky uh, it also is is uh, even more time consuming if you try to make it work on mobile, and you know more people read yeah. read stuff on mobile these days than anywhere. So it's yeah, I mean these days I think I'm I'm much less focused on like what is something new and different we can do presentation wise, and more just like what is the best art or photography we can we can get for a story. Sure. On the freelance side of things, sometimes, you know, you finish a story and a month goes by before it's published or six months. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes a year sometimes goes I'm a little, by. Sometimes I'm a little slow on those edits, yes. <laughs> yeah, sometimes a year goes by. But, but, but I mean, like... I should point out, by you, the way, that I am currently doing this podcast instead of editing one of your stories. So. I should point out I emailed that to you <laughs> two and a half weeks ago. <laughs> no, but I'm curious on your side of things, like with this story, with the Final Fantasy VII story specifically... How long up until the initial publish on the website did you have to work on it or did you have to be like text complete, you know, a month out or like when did you actually finish on the story? I don't remember. Um, I mean, I, I finished most of it before they did the layout, um, but I don't really remember how long exactly. Um, and it, honestly, probably like I was changing little like details here and there up till right like the day before. Usually with yeah. any story, we'll be changing like some words here or there, some little thing like right up until um, it goes live. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it didn't have to be in some ways done a little bit earlier, but it's more like you just had to like be very clear with who the people are and where they need to appear in the story and all that kind of stuff. And if you need to change like some words here or there, that can usually be done towards the end um mm -hmm. but yeah i mean probably a little earlier than most but i don't remember exactly were you nervous before the thing was actually published no i was excited like i mean i think you know i i think i mentioned before like when it's a story that's not as much about you it's not like i wrote a lot of opinions in there or i had even like a whole bunch of writing there was some stuff that i written like introductions and stuff like that um but majority of it was um, just quotes from people I had tracked down. So like I knew people would like that. Like it's, it's not, I mean, you know, there's always people who don't like anything you do, but in general compared to most of the kind of stuff that you see on, on the internet or, or, or website like ours, like it, it was much le like, it's not the kind of story that was going to get as much hate as a lot of stuff. Um, sure. so yeah, I mean, I think I, it, it's fun to share all the work you've been done with someone or when, when there's you know there's less risk of like a huge backlash i think did you read any of the reddit threads that were posted about the story to like see what readers were saying i probably did i mean i didn't like do comprehensive like every little detail here and there but yeah i mean i usually check up on stuff I, it's i mean I, I i don't necessarily take the whole like don't read the comments approach that some people do i think it's healthy too i, I think it, it it can bug you sometimes like there are still stories i've done from like years ago mm that I'll like remember a specific comment from that I, you know, I didn't care for or whatever. So like it, it does stick in your head and that's probably not the most healthy part of it. But overall, I think I'd rather hear everything or, you know, a lot of it than, yeah. than not just because I feel like that helps you get better. How did this story do for Polygon? Like, I mean, obviously that's a weird numbers game where it depends on, you know, how much money is put into a story versus what you get back. But like, how did it perform? Uh, I mean, it did well, uh, numbers-wise. I, I don't remember the specific numbers, but like relative yeah. to your average feature, it did very well. It was probably one of our, uh, if not our most successful feature that year. Um, but mm. it, you know, it, 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 there's no chance it will ever make its money back. Like you don't do uh, a story that takes that long or it requires that much like translation or photography or whatever else, um, all the money you put into it that would ever kind of like pay off one-to-one. -one. So we don't really view it that way. It's, it's almost like more like a marketing thing. Like we could say like, hey, let's like, let's put up this flag to show people we do fun stuff from time to time um, and kind of justify it that way as like, here's something that people might like that we can kind of like um, just use as kind of like a, uh, 
hey, you know, we do more than just all the other stuff. Um, but it, but I mean, it, also beyond that, it, it's it's a lot of it just. I know it doesn't seem as like strategic or anything, but a lot of it's just kind of like what we want to do. Um, I think I'm fortunate in my role that like I don't have the same traffic pressures that some people do. Um, mm-hmm. Like or even at, especially at previous jobs, like they were like very specific, like, you know, you have to hit this number, you have to do these kinds of things, you have to like optimize in every quick way. Um, uh-huh. And at Polygon, like, I mean, here and there, those kinds of things have come up. But like for the most part, I have had like a ton of freedom to not have to worry about that kind of stuff. Um, mm. So, and and that's like through all the different eras of Polygon too. So I, I really, I think a lot of this was just like, we think this will be cool and we want to do it. And my boss was like, yeah, I agree. So it wasn't sure. really like a big um, concern on that level. Wait, I've seen you all like re-up it a few times and put it back on the homepage. Do you still get like a bunch of people clicking through and reading and checking it out when you do something like that? Not huge, no. I mean, usually sure. the the energy gets kind of sapped after it's been out for a while, and like you, when you try, you can catch people who haven't seen it before or people who want to check it out again or something. But yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think especially if there's some like ex- like reason for it, like when the remake came out, and we're gonna you know you put that up to be like, hey, you know, remember this kind of per- partially for that like marketing thing, like hey, remember when we did this? That was cool. Um, and yeah. partially also just because you know if people are getting excited for the remake, maybe they want to maybe they want to kind of check it out again. But no, I mean, those are, yeah, usually your reheats don't get the same amount of attention as when it first goes out. It's it, it's always interesting to see what an interview subject says about your story once they finally get the chance to see your story. What was some of the feedback you got from the people interviewed for this piece? Well, it's tricky, too, because a lot of people interviewed in this piece uh, spoke Japanese, so they couldn't even read the yeah. story when it got out there. I remember the like. I got a picture of Sakaguchi like sitting next to the thing. I think he was like giving a thumbs up or something. Just like, <laughs> here's the story. I'm with it. And I'm like, okay, that's great. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I didn't really get like in depth uh, translated responses yeah, yeah. from a lot of those people. Uh, some of the people who spoke English sent nice comments, like saying like, hey, yeah, that was really cool or something. But usually that kind of stuff is not unless they like disagree with something or they have like something they really want to elaborate on. Usually it's just like a couple lines, like, hey, that turned out really well. Congrats or something like that. So. Has it been translated to Japanese? Because I know the book has been translated to a couple different languages. Uh, the book is currently available in French and yeah. will later this year be available in Spanish. Um, but no, we we intentionally didn't want to translate into Japanese um, because of the amount of work it would take. Basically because a lot of the interviews were originally done in Japanese and we didn't really like organize it in such a way that it would be easy to figure out what the exact original quotes were. Because a lot of times we'll take like half of somebody's answer and use it because that's the part that fits the section we're talking about. And so mm-hmm. to to take what we have now and translate it into Japanese would totally be doable, but that doesn't feel right to me to translate something into another language and then translate it back because it feels like you're going to get mm-hmm. stuff wrong. If, if nothing else, you'll get like the voices of the people wrong. So... That's something you just have to deal with when you're translating into like English or, or French or whatever else, um, because it's never going to be exactly perfect as far as like the feel or like the the kind of mannerisms that someone may have. But you you do your best. But to do that twice uh, felt like it was going pretty far, uh, and and doing it back into Japanese would have been, yeah, I don't know, it, it didn't feel right. So so yeah, we we didn't want them to just kind of retranslate the English into Japanese, and it would have been too much work to do it to go back and get the original audio for everything and figure out exactly which pieces go where. Sure. So, I mean, I, I don't even know if we had like people asking, I think we, we discussed it at one point, but that was something we were like, yeah, we don't really think that's probably the best way to go. Sure. Well, how, how did the whole like book version of this story come about? What's the Genesis there? Yeah. So, so Chris Grant, who's a boss of Polygon at the time and now even higher up beyond that. Um, he, he basically just reached out to me and he was like, Hey, you want to do it? And I'm like, okay. Um, so, it, yeah, it was his idea, and he was like, hey, this this seems like we have something here. Do you want to try to, like, I, I think he likes game art books. Like, I know he's he showed me some of his stuff from time to time. He, he just buys them because he likes them. And this wasn't an art book specifically, but it's kind of in that same category. Um, so he uh, was like, hey, you know, you want to look into it? And I was like, yeah, that sounds fun. So I, I, I put together, like, a list of, like, a few companies that we might want to partner with because we didn't really know how to make books. And we didn't want to, you know, we didn't want to, like, do it ourselves because that would have both been a risk like financially but also just like it was a whole 
whole process you would have to set up as far as like payment and distribution and all that. And it's, yeah. we don't want to go that far. So we were just like, yeah, let's see who we can get. And, and yeah, read on memory was uh, the first company that I, I wanted to reach out to. So I, I reached out to them and they were like, I was like, Hey, what do you think? And they're like, yeah, Darren over there reached out like right after he's like, yeah, let's do it. And I was like, okay. So that was pretty fast. Um, I think a, a big part of that was just because, you know, you, you, could, you could already see most of the story. It wasn't really like a, a potential pitch. It was like, here's the majority of what we've been giving you. And, yeah. and also I think, you know, we gave them, uh, fairly good terms because we weren't really interested in making a lot of money on this. We were viewing it more as just like a fun project and something that'd be interesting. And again, kind of like a marketing thing. Um, so we were like, Hey, you know, you want this? And they were like, yeah. So we're like, okay, we'll take a bunch of, of free copies just to give away to people instead of, instead of money. So we weren't really looking for, uh, the same kind of level of, of payout that like a, you know, an author on their own probably would be. How did you, how did you approach the book? Like what were things that you felt needed to be changed or altered that what might make sense on a website version of the story, but might not on the page? There wasn't a lot of that. The biggest change was uh, we cut out the, some of the, like the, the anticipatory stuff. Like, so like when we were writing the book or when I was writing, the book, I guess um, the, uh, the remake hadn't been announced and then it got announced. And then we had some stuff in the article on the, on, on website that was kind of like, here's what's going to happen or here's what people think might happen or here's what they, they feel about a potential thing like this. Um, and then once it became like a real game, um, it didn't make as much sense to have that in a book where people could like, like if you read that book now, uh, you wouldn't want to read like what people think is going to happen in the book. So, uh, or, or with the game. So it was very much like kind of, uh, to keep it like less, uh, timely, uh, Sure. or time sensitive so yeah we, we cut that and but then we added a bunch of stuff too we added like a bunch of interviews that i i was able to get later and then just like a bunch of like cutting room floor stuff that didn't necessarily fit into the main narrative but we could kind of include as like bonus material um so there, i think it was i forget like three thousand words more or five thousand words mm. something like that so it, it was you know there's some stuff in there that was kind of interesting but um it wasn't like a huge new it wasn't like a, a whole new book what was the secret message in that book? Oh, yes, yes, yes. So, yeah, so we had this, like, uh, there's a bookmark that comes with, with both versions. There's, like, a special edition and regular edition of the book. And it has, like, these, like, like cutouts in it. So if you line them up on certain pages, you can kind of, like, find characters and uh, uh, kind of spell out this message, which I don't know if I want to spoil. But uh, it's basically, there's a nickname for one of the people in the book that we used as the secret message. And that leads to uh, this website that if you type it in, you get this song that uh, is kind of like a theme song for the book, which just, of course, makes sense. So uh, we thought that was a fun little little bonus. Have you have you played the remake yet? I have. I mean, not. I actually haven't played it all the way through. I, I just played for a couple hours. I mean, I, I, that's the thing is that like, I'm, I, I like it. Uh, I, yeah. I just, I never... I don't know. I don't, I don't have time to play a lot of stuff these days. So unless it's like something directly relating to something I'm working on, it's, it's hard for me to find the time. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's amazing. Like, I, I think the thing that seems most notable to me is just like how pretty it is, you know, like, yeah. and, and how much that feels like it's designed for, for new consoles. Like it, it seems like they're just kind of like, they didn't want to have to redo everything in a couple of years. So they're just like, well, let's just get it there now. And then we'll just kind of port it over. Um, Cause with like, with the episodic kind of approach, I think it, it, you know, it's very much like right at the end of a generation. That's a weird time to release an episodic game. So you, I think we, we talked about it a little bit and you, you've dropped little tidbits throughout our chat here, but what is, what is the next big thing you're tackling? Yeah. I keep trying to lead you there and then you keep shutting me down and wanting to talk about final fantasy instead. <laughs> It's really fun. Um, no, uh, yeah. So I'm 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 doing a, a big Street Fighter project now, which is basically it's very similar to Final Fantasy. So I think it's it's kind of mm. relevant to what we're talking about. It's a uh, it's um, so I did like this Street Fighter or two oral history. I think in like 2014 or something like that. Um, and so now I'm kind of like taking that and just like looking at everything around it, like from Street Fighter 1 to, to Alpha to like 3 and all that, kind of like the first 10 years of that series oh, wow. and just doing like a whole bunch of different stories about um, different moments and different uh, 
things that happened in those 10 years. And it's very much along lines of Final Fantasy where it's like a behind the scenes thing. And then we're kind of like collecting all those and we're going to make them into a book. If, if we can, we're going we're gonna to do like a, a crowdfunding campaign to try to, yeah. um, to try to kind of uh, collect all these in one full story instead of just like in the, the individual pieces. So all, not all of them, but like a lot of the, uh, the stories will just appear on Polygon as like individual one-off articles or features. And then uh, they'll, if you put them all together, they kind of feel like this, this more complete story. When when is that gonna start rolling out? I don't know. We're very close. Um, yeah. I, I finished the first story. First story is gonna be on Street Fighter One, um, mm-hmm. which is is uh, done. It's being copy edited right now. It's got we got the art in. Looks pretty good. So basically, we're gonna launch that alongside the the, the Kickstarter campaign. But I don't know mm. the exact date yet. So who knows? It may be up by the time people hear this. It may be a little later. Please, if you have any interest feel free to buy it, but don't, don't feel any is pressure it, either. There's lots of free stuff that'll be on the internet. Mo- the majority of it will be free on Polygon. There'll be some extra stuff in the book. Is it through read-only memory again? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for coming on my the inaugural episode of my show. It's taken me two and a half years to get you to do a podcast with me. What was the hang-up? Um, the, what's that now? <laughs> two and a half why, years? Why that doesn't seem so right. I think you just you asked me when you when you submitted that story two and a half weeks ago, right? Um, yeah, that's right. I don't know. I uh, I generally, you know, I I don't do a lot of like, uh, I don't know. I don't consider myself that funny. I guess I don't. I don't necessarily want to just do like a whole bunch of like opinion stuff because I I feel like there's more interesting stuff that I can do. And so I try to sure. focus on other stuff, and it it, it helps that. Game Query is a just stellar podcast that really feels like it doesn't need me. So I, I feel like uh, <laughs> I try not to get in the way of the magic that happens over there. The joy of being the only person working on this show is I can cut out all the parts where you insulted me during this episode and no one will. I'm kind of disappointed that we lost the audio on the first one because there were a lot of good little digs in there. <sighs> anything, <laughs> anything else you want to plug? Twitter, all that. <laughs> I am feeling bad about this now with that last reaction so i should probably back off <laughs> um no i'm good go to polygon check out the stuff street fighter yeah should be good cool well thank you again appreciate it no Take care. thank you for listening to the first episode of how i made that and thank you to my ten dollar and or above patrons james smith jv gwaltney jeffrey kieschlick jeremy bull jill Grote, and kenneth shepherd Lastly, thank you to 3D Blast for contributing the theme song to this show, which is the song Beyond Nostalgia from his album, Iconic Bitch. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash blakehester.